The Bible reading today is Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. 
He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed in Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Well, friends, we've obviously read through a pretty big chunk of Mark's gospel. We're going to spend our time in that chapter, and uh, given that there's a lot of ground to cover, I'd really encourage you to have a Bible open there in front of you uh, so that we can, we can pick up some of the highlights as we make our way through it. Speaking of highlights, though, 
Gee, we live in a beautiful part of the world, don't we? It's a, it's a long weekend and there's a few people that have away, gone away on holidays, but in many ways I think uh, we're a pretty good holiday destination ourselves. Uh, the beach is amazing, cafes are buzzing, the air is clean and crisp. And I reckon for most of us it probably took less than 10 minutes in the traffic to get here. Life is pretty easy when you call Brighton and the surrounding suburbs your own hometown. Adelaide was recently voted one of the most livable cities in the world and I reckon we live in one of the most livable corners of it, don't we? It's a pretty wonderful hometown, which is a really awkward gear change to the contrast that Jesus experienced when he went to his hometown, right? Nazareth, we've heard of it because it's in the Bible. Before that, hardly anyone had. A very ordinary place, a very ordinary, unimpressive part of Israel. You probably couldn't have found it on TripAdvisor, because it hadn't become famous until Jesus made it famous. But actually, the very ordinary view that Jesus saw as he arrived in his hometown of Nazareth, that wasn't the only thing that greeted him, was it? He's just finished displaying his incredible power. He's brought a dead girl to life, and the crowds have been thronging to see him, hanging on his every word. But his old classmates from school, they're not impressed, not even one bit. And so his amazing power meets this incredible apathy. Isn't this the carpenter, they say? Isn't this Mary's son and the, and the brother of James? You can kind of picture them. Doesn't, doesn't his sister work down at the pizza shop? I mean, who does this guy think he is? Jesus has just shown his amazing power and yet he meets this incredible apathy and they reject him. Uh, this time it's from those who knew him really well, knew him well enough to know him in those ordinary terms that, humanly speaking, he was just a nobody. And so they decided that they weren't going to listen to him. Which, of course, is no different to the conclusion that most people in our hometown make about Jesus today. Politely acknowledging that he was a pretty impressive guy guy in the pages of history, but as far as my life is concerned, he's just one of us, a nobody. Not anybody that I need to listen to anyway. Nothing to see here, move along. And so Jesus does move on and he teaches from village to village, we've just read. Amazing power and wisdom, which is accepted by some and dismissed by many. But then, in what we've just read, Jesus does something new. He expands his mission and ministry, doesn't he? He he sends out his disciples to expand his work. And what we're going to see is that as it is for the Master, so it will be for his disciples. Did you notice that as Jesus sent out his disciples, they were, they were sent to do exactly what he did, verse 12, preaching that people should repent, casting out demons, healing the sick. They shared his mission. But Jesus knew that they would also share his reception. Verse 11, If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet. Okay, we've come to a point in Mark's Gospel where Jesus does something new. He's been training up his disciples as his ministry apprentices and now as he deploys them out into the field, he shows them that as it is with the Master, so it will be with his disciples, sharing his mission and its rejection. And that's really helpful for us to see because this is a chapter that is setting up a key concept that Mark will come back to again and again and again throughout the rest of this book. And this is the big idea for us today, that 
if we follow Jesus, will we follow the servant king who stands in total contrast with the kings of this world? And in light of that, we will follow him, if we will follow him, in the face of apathy and rejection. Now, to help us to see this, Marx paints a really profound contrast between the way of the world and its kings and the way of God and its kingdom. Did it strike any of you as totally weird, talking about awkward gear changes, to go from here's Jesus, here's his disciples, out they go, and then King Herod and John the Baptist and what is going on with all of this? You see, with his disciples preaching about the kingdom of God, God's king, Jesus, he's growing in renown, which is exactly what should happen when the disciples of Jesus are spreading the news. Evangelism should make Jesus famous. And so as Jesus' profile starts trending, well, even the powerful people take notice, people such as King Herod. Now, a brief aside about King Herod, he was a puppet king because his family... Well, they'd been put on the throne by Rome, the Roman Empire, as an attempt to have the local Jewish population kept happy, except the Herodians, well, they were only kind of half Jewish and they weren't at all religious and it didn't really impress the local Jewish population. King Herod, he was, he was a political animal. He was full of aspiration, but really light on conviction. And to help paint the picture for us, Mark hits pause on the action with Jesus and takes us on a flashback, kind of a, you know, on a previous episode of Real Wives, of Real Housewives of King Herod, he wants, to, he wants to take us to this flashback to get a bit of insight into the kings of the world. And from verse 17 to 19, Mark tells us why Herod would think that John had come back from the dead to haunt him because Herod had actually put John to death himself. And the story is, it's pretty gross. Now, I think I've got a picture here of, here we go, a manuscript of Flavius Josephus' History of the Jews, the antiquity, in Antiquities. And I'm, I flash this up for us because it's actually helpful for us to know, as we come to a passage like this in Mark's Gospel, to realise that the picture that we have of King Herod here is not only found in the Bible. About 40 years after these events, a bloke called Josephus uh, was a man that was commissioned by the Roman Empire to compile a history of Rome and he described exactly this situation with all the same info, just a slightly different political perspective. And I put that up there because it's just an, another really helpful reminder, I think, of kind of the reliability of the New Testament as history. Anyway, whether we're reading from Mark's Gospel, Matthew, John or Josephus, we know that Herod had a conflict with John the Baptist because Herod had married his brother's sister, uh, sorry, his brother's wife, his sister-in-law. Yeah, it is a bit woe. The whole family was a bit woe. Josephus describes Herodias, that's his sister-in-law that became his wife, as a social climber, my phrase, not his, who was happy to ditch one brother for the sake of securing even greater wealth and prestige, kind of jumping onto the horse that's running faster. And she was willing to sacrifice even her daughter's modesty and honour for her own purposes. And so what was the reason that Herodias hated John the Baptist? Well, verse 17 to 19, John had preached the kingdom, he'd called people to repent and to believe. And in Herod and Herodias' case, this meant that John publicly condemned their marriage. But Herod, he's a poll-driven politician, he fears the backlash of the crowds who admired John. And so 
If he goes too hard on John, the pushback will be difficult to handle. And he's got his own fascination with John himself, doesn't he? So he put him in prison to silence him, but didn't have the guts to do anything more. Until eventually the great prophet John was put to death on a whim to please a pretty girl who'd seduced her stepdad, uncle and his powerful guests. It's a flashback that Mark gives us to highlight two things for us. First, he highlights the way of the kingdom. That standing for the kingdom of God comes at a cost, as it did for John the Baptist. And of course, John's execution on the whim of the politics of Herod, that points us forward to Jesus' execution, doesn't it? On the whim of the politics of Pilate. John's rejection points us forward to what Jesus knows is coming for him too. That's the way of the kingdom. It's denying self, it's sacrifice based on conviction and all of it ultimately for the glory of God and in the service of others. That's the first thing we see in this this really gory, gross flashback to the death of John the Baptist. But the second thing that Mark highlights for us in this flashback is just how much the way of the kingdom stands in total contrast with the way of the world. That's what Herod and his family represent. They are self-interested, self-serving, self-promoting and they're happy to step on anyone to climb the ladder of the self. That's the way of the world and its kings. And that's a contrast that Mark will highlight again and again and again between now and the cross of Jesus. It's the contrast between the way of the world and its kings on one hand and the way of the kingdom of God and its king on the other. So without getting bogged down into the gory details of this story of Herod and John the Baptist, Mark shifts us back from that flashback to the main timeline in verse 30, in verse 30 as the disciples return from their mission. They've had such a busy time, they want to catch up with Jesus, debrief it all but they've got so many people pressing in upon them that Jesus recognised that they need some refreshment and so the scene is set for this profound contrast between the kingdom of God and its king, in contrast to the kingdom of the world that we've just had this snapshot of. As we read from verse 30 to to 44, what we know as the feeding of the 5,000, we see Jesus with his disciples trying to get a bit of refreshment after a busy mission trip and we have this really central paragraph from verse 32 to 34. Let me read it for you again and, and read it with me if you've got your Bible there in front of you. They went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognised them and ran on foot from all of the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. We need to remember the scenario. It's just, these guys have just been running flat out on a mission trip. They've got back together exhausted. They can't even grab a bite to eat. And so they go to a quiet place. And when Jesus landed, he saw them and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. And we've read what unfolds. It's yet another display of Jesus' great power and compassion. The crowds are hungry, so he does the impossible and he feeds them from a single lunchbox. In a reflection of the culture of the day, we're told that there were 5,000 men. So the feeding of the 5,000 should really be known as the feeding of 
many more than 5,000 because there were bound to be a bunch of women and kids present as well, right? And in his Gospel account, Matthew highlights that. Yes, there were women and children in addition. So in his kindness, Jesus uses his power to meet the practical needs of the crowds. Case closed. It's another amazing miracle. Except, of course, there's more going on, right? Because we've seen the way of the world and its kings. Self-interested, self-serving, self-promoting, Herod and Herodias and their schemes. But here, Jesus looks on the crowds with compassion. And despite his plans for a quiet afternoon with his closest friends to debrief their mission trip, he turns to the crowd and he feeds them, first with his words as he teaches, and then with an abundant meal. It's a total contrast to Herod, the way of the world and its kings. This is the way of the king of God's kingdom. He is compassionate and kind, unlike anyone else that we might look to for security or provision and good governance, he is overflowing in compassion. But actually, there's even more to it than that. Because Jesus saw the crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, at one level, that is a really good image if you've ever seen a bunch of sheep in a paddock. That's a pretty good image of a a whole crowd of people sitting on a, a barren hillside, bleating aimlessly. They're about to get hungry soon because they're miles from the nearest McDonald's. So they're a crowd who need feeding. But at another level, it speaks to their vulnerability. A sheep without a shepherd in the hills of Judea, they not only didn't have much chance of finding good food and water, they were also highly vulnerable to attack by, by wolves and other predators. So they're a crowd who need feeding and protecting. But at yet another level, throughout the Old Testament, God used the image of his people as sheep and their leaders as shepherds under him, as Matt pointed out in the kids' talk, the great shepherd. So at various points, the kings are referred to as shepherds and and those leaders were meant to be shepherds who reflect God and his shepherd heart. So we've already read from Psalm 23, this wonderful example of where King David, kind of a small s shepherd of God's people, celebrated that he was cared for by God, the big capital S shepherd of his people. The Lord is my shepherd, he said. And so Jesus looks on the crowd and he sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. He sees that they've been abandoned by their human leaders and he has compassion on them because he comes as the shepherd. And when he teaches them his word on a mountain in the wilderness, I think we're meant to bring to mind the great occasion when God gave his word to the people on the Mount Sinai in the wilderness. When he fed them with a miraculous bread in the wilderness, I think we're meant to see that this isn't just another case of Jesus doing the impossible. It is Jesus doing what God did when he sent manna from heaven, bread from heaven, a miraculous meal to feed his people in the wilderness. Just as God is the good shepherd of his people, so we see here that Jesus is the good shepherd and is in total contrast with the kings of the world. He looks on people with compassion. He reaches out with great cost to himself to share his kingdom with them, both in its truth and in its blessings. Did you notice that summary, verse 42? They all ate. All of them. No one missed out. No one ever does in his kingdom because this king is generous. 
They all ate and were satisfied. Not just kind of topped up with a snack until they could get something better. They were satisfied. They didn't need any more. This king is sufficient. And we know that they all had enough because there were 12 baskets of leftovers. But only 12 baskets from a crowd of more than 5,000, only enough for each disciple to fill one basket. I think that's a great image of precision catering, right? (laughs) On the one hand, it's a picture of overflowing compassion matched with powerful provision. And it is a profound reminder for us that as we look to Jesus, we look to the one who can be completely trusted to act in love and compassion for us too. But Mark doesn't give us long to kind of dwell on that, to sort of bask in the carbohydrate coma of a a tummy full of bread. Verse 45, immediately, Mark points out to us, immediately Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go. It's easy for us to read on through this, but, but Jesus is quite forceful at this point. He made them go. And he wanted the crowd to move on too. He stayed behind to make sure they dispersed. And we might wonder, why? Well, I think there are a few subtle details that Mark wants us to picture. That it's hard for us to bring to mind when we think about the feeding of the 5,000 because we've read too many kids' storybook Bibles that have them sitting down in lovely family groups on picnic rugs having a wonderful time in the park. But this, this miracle takes place in the north of Judea. It's an area that is known for stirring up rebellion against Rome. And this is a very remote place, away from the prying eyes of local authorities. This was a very busy crowd. We read that there were so many coming and going that Jesus and his disciples, they couldn't even get a moment to eat. And a big crowd, who so badly wanted a piece of Jesus, that they chased him up the coast while he travelled by boat. And unlike the other crowds, they didn't seem to come to Jesus to be healed. Did you notice that wasn't even mentioned? And it's a big crowd, 5,000 men. And we thought before, oh, that might just be kind of the sexism of the day, that they've only done a head count for the blokes. Well, in John's Gospel, we actually read that this crowd, Jesus recognised that this crowd, they wanted to make him their king by force, so he withdrew. So I don't think the head count on the men is just sexism on view. Because the men, they're the fighters in the army, aren't they? And 5,000, that's a small army. That's a legion in the Roman army. This isn't an innocent gathering of confused family who are scratching their heads wondering, I thought Siri was taking us to the the local fish and chip shop and, and here we are and there's no dinner. No, that's not the picture that we should have in our minds. You see, this crowd is just as confused about the way of the kingdom of God as the disciples are. They run the risk of trying to take things into their own hands and take the kingdom by force. Because that's the way of the world. Mark's just reminded us how gross and distorted Herod is. But that's not the way of this king and his kingdom. Jesus is the shepherd who came to feed his sheep. He came with the humble ministry of preaching the kingdom of God. And though he came to lead them as their king, he came to lead them as a humble king who served his people, teaching, feeding, ultimately dying for them. So he sent everyone home immediately before it got out of hand. Because while this shepherd comes with power, he has a much bigger mission 
than just some armed rebellion to overthrow the local dictator. Because this shepherd is so much more than just another human king. He provides like God provides. He talks like God talks. And now, as we read in, Mark shows us that he even walks like God walks, treading a path across the waters, walking on the water, demonstrating again a glory that is more than just supernatural. It's exactly how God is described in all his glory. For just one example, if you're taking down notes, you might want to turn up Job chapter 9, verses 4 to 11. The kind of connections between the way that Job describes God there in all his majesty and glory and what Jesus does here is it's just profound. And at one point, Job talks about God's power to create all things. He says, he stretches out the heavens and he treads on the waves of the sea. The Psalms pick up on that a few different points. This image that God alone walks on the water. And so while it's no surprise that the disciples, they were terrified in the middle of the night to see a figure of some man walking out, on the, surely it's a ghost. Mark's point is that if they had understood that Jesus, who Jesus is, they'd know what they were looking at here too. And Jesus shows that he walks like God, just as he talks like God and provides like God. Again and again, Jesus shows his immense power and glory and majesty, yet in contrast with the ways of the world, he refuses to use it for his personal gain. He sends the crowd home before they get the wrong message. Unlike the kings of the world who use their people to prop up their own interest, this king of God's kingdom, well, he looks on the crowds with compassion and he teaches them and he showers them with his goodness. And he did all of that at a time when he was just spent, exhausted. He started the day looking for some time out and he ended it climbing a mountain to finally get it after all of the crowds have gone home. This is the one who is selfless instead of self-interested. Jesus is the shepherd who is self-giving instead of self-promoting. And so Mark shows us again and again what kind of king Jesus is. The king that we can look to with absolute confidence that he will not turn away. He will not turn inwards to his own self-interest. You and I can trust we can trust him as the good shepherd who is overflowing in compassion. But you remember that Mark's been posing two questions for us. Who is Jesus? And then how will you respond? And it's no different here, I think, for us. Because at this point, Jesus' miracles here, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on the water, I don't think they're just another wow moment. Look at his power, wow. I think actually Mark is pushing us harder than that. Because he's beginning to show us that as it is with the master, so it should be with his disciples. I mentioned earlier that at this point in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, he's introducing us to the idea that Jesus intends for his disciples to share in his mission. And Mark wants us to see that Jesus expects his disciples to follow in his footsteps. Not like we're all going to start following his footsteps across the water, okay? But walking amongst the crowds with humility and compassion making the kingdom known to sheep who so desperately need their shepherd. Let me remind you how this chapter began to show you what I mean. You see, we started with Jesus facing rejection of his own message 
despite his amazing power. And, and then he sends out his 12 disciples as kind of mini ambassadors of the kingdom, little mini-me's of Jesus. Same job spec to preach the kingdom, same prospect of rejection for doing it. And while you and I, we don't follow in Jesus' footsteps by dying on the cross, we never take the sins of the world upon our shoulders, we are called to share his heart, to share his heart for the world for which he died, and to look on the crowds like he does. So earlier on, we saw some pictures of our own hometown. I wonder if anyone can tell us, where's this picture taken? Can you recognise some of the scenery? You might have even been there. Where is it? Jetty Road, Brighton. Jetty Road, Brighton. Yeah. What about this one? I was there that day, just a bit further down. Where's that one? Can you recognise the hotel? You can buy fish and chips just under the balcony. That's the start of the tour down under, right? Just down on the Esplanade. All right, one more picture. Familiar scene. Brighton Classic. We've even got the event, right? We've even got the event. Yes. Most of the time, we're in places like this. That's what we'll see. We'll see the place, we'll see the event. We'll probably see what that place means for us and what we'd enjoy about it. We can imagine the buzz of the crowd or kind of the the warmth of the fire. We look at the crowds and we see them the way the world sees them. They're people having fun. And most of the time, I think we look on and we see them the way the world sees them. It's people with life fairly sorted out, doing just fine. But friends, we need to be challenged that that is simply walking in the ways of the world. When we need to see the crowds the way that Jesus saw them. Through the lens of his kingdom and their desperate need for him. Friends, if you looked closely, that looks like a whole crowd of Marilyn Monroe impersonators going for a swim. But we need to let Jesus reframe our view and to look on the crowds and to see them with our hearts moved with compassion because they're actually like sheep without a shepherd. They're they're crowds of people who don't know the good shepherd in all his power and his compassion who comes to bring life, even if it looks like they're already living the good life. Friends, we need to ask God to change our perspective that we might share our master's heart to look on and see crowds of people caught up in the ways of this world who so desperately need to know the blessing of the kingdom of God and its glorious king so I think Mark challenges us to share the shepherd's heart and what might that look like on the ground I think it starts with prayer for our neighbours and for our church, that we would see the crowds as Jesus sees them, that we would have compassion for them as he does and recognise their great need despite the facade. Now, in my own personal experience, I pray for the things that I love, but I also grow in concern and interest for the things that I pray for. So let's be prayerful people. Let's get along at 9am on Sunday morning and and join together in praying for the crowds that are around us on a Sunday morning at, cafe, at cafes or nippers in the sun, summer or, or footy in the winter, that they would realise that the one thing that can really bring them satisfaction. Let's pray that God would give us that heart.
But I actually think that's, that's also why we talk about partnership and, and getting on board with what God is doing further abroad and to do so with our wallets in mind in our financial partnership. Let's get on board with the work of the evangelical students as they seek to reach the crowds of uni students who are just as lost as sheep without a shepherd. And not only in week one of term, as Simon and Sue can acknowledge, these kids have got no idea what the difference between a lecture and a troop group is, and yet in life... Jesus looks on and sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. Or supporting the work of Bush Church Aid or the Church Missionary Society as they take the news of King Jesus to the remote corners of Australia and the world because we actually see those people as Jesus does. But I also think it should prompt us to action. In his compassion, Jesus acted even when he was worn out at the end of a long day looking for a quiet place. When he saw people, he saw them through the compassionate eyes of a loving shepherd. It's a challenge for us, I think, to follow in his footsteps when it comes at a cost and an inconvenience, when we think of other things that might be far more relaxing. But friends, I think most of all, it's about our heart. It's praying that God would help us to appreciate the beauty of our master's heart. Yeah, Mark held up this gory contrast with the ugliness of King Herod and his family. May we grip the beauty of Jesus' heart as we see the compassion that he shared for the crowds. May we long for God to grant us that kind of heart too, that we would be gutted by their experience of life without him, that we would be grieved at the future that they face outside the blessings of his grace. So at one level we read Mark chapter 6 and yes, Jesus feeds the 5,000. We should just stand in awe of that. His amazing power. But we should also stand in awe that he is so unlike any other human, let alone the kings and rulers, in the history of all humanity. Stand in awe at the one who can be trusted to care for you with such great power and compassion. So let's stand in awe, but then also pray that God would help us to share his heart. That we too would look on and we would see our neighbours and our friends, our schoolmates, the guys down at the footy club with such great compassion that we'd be willing to go the way of our our king. Selfless instead of self-interested. Self-giving instead of self-promoting. Because we want to keep pointing others to him. (laughs) Because he is their good shepherd. So let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you keep showing us our mighty King Jesus in all his power and majesty and his overflowing kindness. Father, as we see this, we pray for us this morning that you would just continue to grip us with how awesome he is, how wonderful he is, that he can be trusted. We can place our lives in his hands. But Father, we also want you to teach us to place our feet in his footsteps, to walk as he walked, and perhaps especially to see this world and its people the way that he sees them that you might give us his heart of compassion that overflows for our neighbours and our friends and our colleagues 
who might look like they've got life together, but we know that if they don't know Jesus, they are like sheep without a shepherd. So Father, pray, we pray that you would keep giving us insight into Jesus' heart and absolute awe of who he is and a longing to share that heart too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Simon's just shown us through Mark's Gospel, uh, Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and asked the question that Mark asks us, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to us? And how are we going to reflect Jesus? We know Jesus.